This is an ABC podcast. Joanne Peterson was born into a nice Jewish family in North London in the post-war years. In the mid-1960s, Joanne went to work for the Beatles' manager, Brian Epstein, after meeting two of the Beatles in a nightclub. And I think I'll just repeat that, after meeting two of the Beatles in a nightclub. Joanne became quite close to Brian Epstein and more than once had to clean up the mess after the Beatles came into the office like a whirlwind. Joanne was there for the launch of the Sgt Pepper's album and she saw how Epstein adored the Fab Four, even as they began to grow away from him. And Joanne was one of the people who found Brian Epstein in his apartment after an accidental overdose. Afterwards, Joanne made a new life for herself in Australia, where she went on to represent some major Australian artists in the music industry. Hi, Joanne. Hi, Richard. Tell me about where you were born and the family you were born into, please, Joanne. Yes. So I was born at the end of the war years. My parents lived in London uh, all through the Blitz, and my mother was told she couldn't have children and any more children. I have a brother who's six years older than me. And then she discovered she was, much to her joy, <laughs> that she was having me. Given that you weren't, weren't expected, were you kind of like the, the, the much longed for golden child in your parents' eyes when you were growing up, Joanne? Completely. Oh. I, was, I was completely <laughs> adored. I mean, people said that when I walked into a room, my father's face lit up. I was totally adored and spoilt. Um, so I grew up in a predominantly Jewish home and my parents bought a house in North London and it became a predominantly Jewish area in northwest London. People would know it as Golders Green or yeah. some people call some people called it Goldberg's Green. <laughs> <laughs> and I had a I had a good childhood, hopeless at school, terrible student, but very loved at home. How observant were your family when it came to the Jewish uh, faith? look, we weren't orthodox I mean we weren't strictly orthodox, but we were observant. You know, my parents we went to to the synagogue on high holidays like Yom Kippur. We had kosher food at home. We were a traditional Jewish family without being overly religious. How were you exposed to the world of showbiz as a kid in that kind of great post-war era of British showbiz? Yeah, my mother's sister, youngest sister, married band leader Joe Loss. Now, Joe Loss was the household name in, in London and he played at all the ballrooms and he played concerts. He was a phenomenal showman, on, on big band showman. My parents used to go to the Palladium and see all the Rat Pack, you know, Frank Sinatra and Sammy Davis Jr. and Dean Martin and Danny Kaye. And I used to sit up in bed and watch them getting dressed up. And it was evening dress to go to the Palladium, the London Palladium, and watch all these people. So there was musicians in the house where I was born, and then that just kept going. There was music in my life from a very early age. So how did you then get a job dancing on the telly when you were 17? <laughs> how did that happen? Well, I always liked to dance. I mean, I grew up dancing to Elvis records, and there was this couple that I, I knew, and they actually were in dance competitions, like jive competitions, and they wanted to go in a thing called Come Dancing, which was a TV dance comp, and they needed another couple. So they got me and another boy I knew and taught us the routines in my mother's kitchen. And my uncle, Joe, was playing on stage while, and we danced to that. And I didn't think we stood a chance, but we kept going through all the heats and... We, we won the whole thing. And when you say and dancing, I, do you mean like jiving rockabilly, sort of rock and yeah, roll, that kind of thing? Yes, like that. And so we had little sort of ties and striped shirts and <laughs> little pleated skirts and um, I had my hair in bunches and bows. And I was young. I was only, I think I was 15 or 16 when <laughs> this was all going on. Given that you weren't having a good time at school, what do you think was expected of you? Not much. My brother went to a very fancy, you know, private boys' school, which was called Bubbly. He went to, to the City of London School. I went to the local school. Oh, look, what can I tell you? You know, I was, I was going. You know, my parents knew I was academically challenged. I wasn't brilliant at school at all. I actually think that I was a bit dyslexic, or I didn't learn well. I couldn't absorb a lot of information. So I think they thought, oh well, she'll be a hairdresser or an air hostess and then she'll marry a nice boy and get married and that'll be it that was the expectations for me I think but however my parents thank God 
insisted that I would need to go and learn something. So they sent me to Pittman's College, which was a shorthand typing college. And I you know, learned secretarial there, which I didn't like much either. But thank God they did that because that set my course of my life, really. Your first showbiz job was in Soho. Now, yeah. Soho was a pretty interesting place back in those days. What sort of a job was it? Well, Soho was the red light district, really. Mm. It was school holidays. I was 16, maybe 17, yeah, 17. As far as my parents thought, I was going to go back to school after the school holidays. But I saw a job advertised and I went for the interview and I got the job. And it wasn't a temporary job, a school holidays job. It was a permanent job. And it was in a place called Gala Films in Soho. And Gala Films was distributors for sexy X films, but they weren't, they weren't porno. They were French movies or Italian movies, which were much more risque than the usual English <laughs> movies and American movies. And I got a job in the dispatch department where I typed up schedules. And the movies in those days were sent in great big cans, maybe silver cans, reel to reel, and they were dispatched by trucks to all the different art houses. They were kind of art house movies. And I had to type up the dispatches and send them around to so that they'd know where to send them. And I learnt very quickly to be more accurate in those dispatches because in my first week, wrong films went to wrong places and there was a mayhem. And my boss, Mr Fox, who was a very stern man, said to me, you've got another week for this job if you don't pull your socks up. So he schooled me in how to be a bit more accurate in attention to detail. And what did you make of Soho in those days, given that you're a nice Jewish girl from North London, Joanne, and you're seeing, like, signs all over Soho saying, busty French model upstairs, yeah, really? that kind of thing, yes. I thought it was exciting. I thought it was fascinating. I'd, I'd stepped out of my, the suburb I grew up in, and suddenly I was in this whole other world. And I was only young. There was older girls that worked there, maybe in their 20s and 30s. And they looked out for me because... I've thought back on this, that actually the guy that owned the company, a guy called Kenneth Rive, was actually quite sleazy. And I was so naive and so unaware of this. So the girls really had my back until my father came up one day to pick me up from work and realise where I was working. And he was horrified, (laughs) absolutely horrified. He said, well, you're leaving this job. And so I did. I had to leave that job. But I told my father, I'm not going back to school. This is it. I'm, I'm going to work. I have this kind of image in my mind that at some point in the very early 60s that post-war London went from black and white to colour. Do you, do you have that feeling and that memory of London's the, the swinging 60s starting in London? Completely. And more so when I look through my photograph albums of my parents, it was black and white. The pictures were black and white. Life was black and white. And then my generation was born, and to be born in, in London in the 60s, we just... Everything burst into dazzling technicolour. Yes, so colourful, so amazing. And you felt it. You felt the energy in the air. You felt the vibrancy. And, you know, the other thing was anything was possible for us. If I didn't, if we didn't like a job, well, we just got another one. There was no job insecurity. There was no fear. There was just opportunity and enthusiasm and excitement. Yeah, I was too young for Beatlemania. It was all over and done with by the time poor, I was... Poor um, you. Poor me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> poor, poor me. Do you yeah. remember hearing the Beatles for the first time and the impact it had on you? I do. I do. I remember hearing them and then I saw them on Top of the Pops and I remember my mother standing in the doorway with a tea towel in her hand, shaking her head, saying, I don't know what you see in them. And uh, she said that for quite a while. But, yes, it was instant, wasn't it? I mean, I was just like every other fan that saw the Beatles and just fell in love with them. There was something so different, you know, their suits and their mop-top and their personalities their, and, and their music, of course, but just their whole energy. They were like nothing we'd ever seen before. So then tell me how you first met two of the Beatles one night in 1964. So now I'm around 20 and I'd worked for a real estate agent for a couple of years. It was a really, really boring job, but, but now I'm in the, I'm going to clubs, I'm going out, London's just a vibrant place, and I just wanted to be in the middle of it all. 
And I had a friend who was a hairdresser and there was a club called the Adlib Club, which I knew the Beatles went to, but it was very exclusive and you had to be a member and nobody could go unless you were very famous. But my hairdresser had a membership. So I, I hounded him, basically. I said, take me, you, you have to take me to this club, I want to go. So finally I wore him down and uh, I went to Bieber and I bought some sexy little Lurex dress and I had the long boots and I spent, you know, the whole week getting ready to go on this adventure. And this club was weird. It was on the fifth floor of a building in near Trafalgar Square. And we, you went up in the lift and as you got in the lift there would be music in the lift. I think it was Martha and the Vandellas and just you got the energy in this tiny lift. And then it went up to the fifth floor and the doors opened and then there was this very dark place inside there and you could hear music and that was the ad-lib club. And uh, we walked in, my heart was in my mouth. I was so excited, I could barely contain myself. I was all eyes, I was so excited. And we ordered drinks and it was a small club. It had a dance floor the size of a hanky and there was a DJ playing sort of Motown records and then Derek went off, and we were dance, we were doing lots of dancing, and then Derek went off to sort of network a bit, and I plonked myself down on the banquette, and a voice next to me said, so where'd you learn to dance like that then? And I just looked, and it was two of the Beatles, and I said, oh, I don't know, you know, when you're that age, you've got so much front. I went, oh, you know, it just comes naturally. <laughs> and he said, what's your name? I said, my name's Joanne, what's yours? And... <laughs> And, and he said, it was George and Ringo, and he said, oh, I'm John and he's Paul. But it was really... <laughs> right. <laughs> but it was George and Ringo. Mm. And um, anyway, we just got chatting. You know, I, was, I think I was probably had quite a lot to drink, so I, was, I wasn't nervous or scared. I was just fascinated, you know. And we got chatting and they asked me what I did, and I said, oh, I've got a really boring job at this real estate agent and it's really dreary. And they said, well... Why don't you phone our manager, Epi? He might be looking for someone. And it was just chat, you know. And I said, OK, yes, I will. All right. That's how I met them. So just like that? And did you have an interview or anything like that? Well, about a week later, I got to work. I was always late on a Monday morning because I was always, you know, being out clubbing all weekend. And my boss said to me, look, if you're going to keep coming in late and being so not punctual, you'll just have to leave. And I said, that's OK, because I don't have to work here. I can go and work for the Beatles, you know. I hadn't even got the job or made a phone call. I just said it, you know. can't believe how kind of leery I was. So I picked up the phone and I phoned NEMS Enterprises, which was the headquarters of the Beatles of Brian Epstein's empire, and asked if there was any positions available thinking they'd say, well, I'll take your name, I'll put you on a file. And they said, hold on, please. And the next thing I was talking to a woman called Wendy Hanson who had a terribly frightfully voice and was terribly grand. And she said, would you like to come in for an interview? Joanne, when you think of all the young women who were, like, screaming, hanging around the hotels just to spend, like, a second with the Beatles, none of them had thought to apply for a job. It's amazing, yeah. isn't it? It was unbelievable. It was amazing. There must have been angel, angels sitting on my shoulders mm. or something. I don't know. Look, universe works in weird and wonderful ways, doesn't it? Yeah. So what kind of an interview did you have? Yeah. Well, first of all, I sat in reception and there was pictures of Scylla Black and Billy J. Kramer and Jerry and the Pacemakers and the Moody Blues. And there was lots of very... They were called dolly girls in those ages. They were you know, mini skirts and very cute-looking girls, very 60s. There was just music going. It was almost like the walls were pulsating. And as I sat there, I knew I was in the middle of what was going on in the 60s in London. I knew this was the centre, this was the epicentre of it all. And then this very tall, lofty six-foot woman came and got me, and she was Brian's PA, and she, her name was Wendy Hanson, and she was very grand. I couldn't understand how come she was in the midst of all this uh, mayhem, really. And she took me into an office, and she gave me a shorthand typing test, and she sat across and read from a letter, and I had to take it down in shorthand and then transcribe it back on the typewriter, and we're not talking golf ball typewriters. We're talking the old clunky typewriters. Clackety-clack-clack-clack. Yes. Mm. So she dictated it, and, look, my, I could barely do shorthand. I, honestly, I'd, 
I think I could put, dear sir, thank you for thank you for your letter of the fifteenth inst. And after that, I would be writing in very long longhand. So she left the letter on her desk and said, "I'll leave you to type it." And the moment she went out the room, I ran over and got the letter and put it next to me, and typed it about five times, sweat running down my back because what if she'd have come back? And seen what I'd done, and, and you were cheating. You know, I was totally cheating, and I was ripping out the paper and shoving them in my bag and starting again because there was no way of whiting them out. I was I was in such a state, and I had a, a wool coat on, and I could feel the sweat rolling down the back of my neck, mm. and I was I was so stressed. Anyway, fortunately, I just managed to get the letter back onto her desk when she walked in, and I tried to, you know, my inner voice was going, "Inner calm, inner calm, just look calm." And um, she came back and she read the letter and she said, oh, yes, that's perfect. <laughs> and then she went away again and she said, if you'd like to come, Mr Epstein, we'll meet you now. So she took me down the corridor and she took me into this office and there he was. The czar had given the world the Beatles and I was sitting opposite him. He was said to be quite shy and almost sweet. Was he shy and sweet like that? Yes, he was very shy. He was very good looking. He wore a dark suit and he had wavy brown hair and nutty brown eyes. He was very handsome and very elegant. And, yes, he was shy. And I, and I was shy. I was sitting in the chair, really shy. And so we both kind of were very shy around each other. And he asked me some questions and asked me what music I liked. And I told him, oh, I like Little Richard and I like Jerry Lee Lewis. And I reeled off some other names and I left the office and I walked down Regent Street. I swear to you, Richard, my feet did not touch the ground. I floated home. And then it was some, maybe a week or two, it was just before Christmas, 64. And then finally, just before Christmas, I got a letter from the general manager of NEMS offering me the job and to present at Brian's private new suite of offices in Mayfair in the beginning of January. Once you started work in that office, I'm sure the Beatles were coming and going. Yeah. Well, the office, because by then he he still had NEMS, which was the hub, but he wanted a quieter office just where he could, you know, look after the Beatles. And in that office, it was just a small suite of offices, very sort of glass and very modern. And he had an office and I sat outside Brian's office and there was a receptionist that started just before me called Jill. And she was she was a modern. She was going out with Keith Moon, the drummer from The Who. And then finally Brian arrived, not the first day of work, but the second day, and he kind of glided in. He was amazing. He was very quiet. There was a quiet energy around him. He glided in. And then I think it was the day after that, the four Beatles arrived. Oh, my God, it was just overwhelming. And anyway, they came in, and I remember thinking, now, just act cool, just be like, you know, like this is a normal part of your life now. And Wendy introduced me to them, and they all made funny cracks and made funny little comments, and and then they went in with Brian. And I remember on the way out, John Lennon saying to Jill... Keith Moon's girlfriend, who had big false eyelashes, and he said, and don't forget, kid, keep a stiff upper eyelash. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, that was typical John Lennon wit. I think it took me a little while to get used to the idea that these are people that are now in my life. Did they write songs in the office? They didn't write songs in that office, but Brian had bought a house in Belgravia, a beautiful house, and he was sick. He, He had glandular fever, And so he asked, would I come over and take some dictation from him there? And after a little while, maybe another month, he decided that he liked having me at his house and he had an office, like a conservatory at the top of the house. It it was on four levels. It was like a tall townhouse. And he made an office in the top of his house, which at night was where all the bands and people and friends would come and party. And during the day, it was my office with just a typewriter in the corner and a couple of phones and a filing cabinet. And that's where I worked for Brian. So then I became his private PA at his home. And a couple of few times, John and Paul would come to the office and come to up there and sit in the corner and, and write songs while I sat in the corner and whispered into my phone that, ''Guess who's here?'' And, yes, they they did write songs. Don't ask me what they were, but um, after they left, 
there was a waste paper bin in the basket and there was lots and lots of paper all thrown around where they'd written lyrics and then torn them off the pad. And, and did you keep those bits of paper? Oh, God, no. I put them all in the bin and just <laughs> complained under my breath what slobs they were and how could they be so sloppy and I took them down and put them in the rubbish. I threw away history. Oh, dear. I know. How did he manage their personalities? Did you see him do that? He really was good at that. He really was. Look... He was such an elegant, sophisticated man, and they admired him. The Beatles admired him because, you know, they came from, you know, quite a rough background. And they respected him and they admired him. And he was warm and he was kind and he was smart. And they trusted him. And you, you've got it going back through... I've just been reading a book called The Velvet Mafia about the managers in, uh, in the 50s, and they were all con men and spivs, and they just managed bands, people like Adam Faith and, and Billy Fury, all these bands, they just ran them into the ground, they ripped them off, they treated them badly, whereas Brian was honest, and they trusted him, and they knew that. So, yes, he did work out their personalities, he got to know them. And his happiest times, the times when he was the happiest of all, was when he was with the boys. It was said that he had a crush on John. Do you think mm. that's true? Or, or did he have a crush on all of them in a funny sort of way? Oh, I think... Well, that's a good thought. I think he did have a crush on all of them. Did he have a crush? Look, there were stories that John and he went off to Spain and were they lovers and did anything happen? There's only two people that would know about that and they're both no longer with us. But I don't think anything did happen. I think John was curious. You know, he'd sit in cafes and say to Brian, well, what do you think of that boy and what do you think of that boy? Of all the Beatles, he was definitely most fascinated with John, no question. But I can't tell you if anything happened between them. And if it did, John Lennon was definitely not gay. I mean, John, John Lennon was curious and maybe he was an experimental, but there was no way John was gay. Whether they had an affair on it doesn't really matter, I think. In the long run, I, 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 you can sort of, if he was in love with them, you can sort of see why. I mean, they're such beautiful young men, all of them. Funny, clever, sort of that working-class energy about them. So yeah. inc- extraordinarily talented. I just wonder if that was the basis of his whole approach to managing them, the fact that he adored them, I suppose, as much as their fans did. Totally. He was a fan. I mean, he, he, he said, you know, the, the thing that absolutely caused him the most excitement was to, to go back into a big stadium and stand up the back and he wanted to scream with all the fans. You know, he adored them. And also he came from Liverpool and even though they came from very different backgrounds, they still came from Liverpool. They, were, they had that Liverpool essence to them. In 65, your much-loved dad died. How was Brian with you about that? Well, I'd only been working for Brian from January, and my dad died in February, late February. Um, My father had um, very bad heart trouble, and he was really lovely. He wrote my mother and I a really beautiful... I mean, he barely knew me, really. I'd only been working for him for quite a short time, and he wrote a very lovely condolence letter to me, and said, don't rush back, you know, just, you know, be with your family. And so I spent the week of mourning with my family, and then I I guess I couldn't wait to get back to work. You know, I had that massive distraction of going back to a job I just started. And it was actually maybe like a delayed reaction. Some time later, something happened, and I literally fell apart and grieved my dad's death and cried a lot. And But... Somehow it was a bit of a suspended grief because of wanting to get back to work in a rather untimely fashion. You're both Jewish. Did he understand that he would have understood the need to sit Shiva, wouldn't he? He did. Yes, he did. And his family were quite observant. His family were very like my family. We weren't religious, but we were observant and we were traditional Jewish family. His father was very respected in the local synagogue, just as my father was respected in the local synagogue. So... We had that unspoken, it's not even an understanding, it's a connection. What happens when you sit Shiva, anyway? What, what actually goes on when, in that process? What happens is that once the funeral has happened, the immediate family gather in the house with the wife and they put these, it's a very strange thing, they put these very short, small chairs, almost like a children's chair in, in kindergarten. We sit on these very low chairs 
and we sit for a week. We don't sit on the whole week, but people come, like immediate family, and they cook and they do for you. You're not meant to do anything. You're just there. You wear black. You don't wear any leather. They cover the mirrors in the house with, with, with white cloths. Why do you cover the mirror with white cloths? So because there's no distraction. You're not looking at yourself. You're looking inward. Then the rabbi comes and he cuts. I remember he cuts a piece of your clothing that I found quite traumatic. It was like a, a, a tearing apart. You're torn literally then, aren't you? Yes, mm. you're torn literally. There's a lot of rituals in the Jewish religion, which I really like. And what happens is that people come to pay their respects and they spend the day with you and they talk about that person and we tell stories and we reminisce and it's, it's actually a very healing process. And then at night the rabbi would come for prayers and the house would be full, absolutely full of people and then there'd be a line of people paying their respects and wishing you long life. I think it's a really, really good thing because... When someone passes away and you've buried them and they might have a bit of a weight, then they go home to nothing. They go home to an yes. empty house. Well, we didn't do that. We had a house full of people that came to nurture you, support you and love you. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. At the time, you became friends with Lulu. Now, wait, wait, this is as in to Sir with love, Lulu? Yes. I went to Videl Sassoon, the hairdresser, had just opened his shop in Bond Street and was doing all these wild geometric cuts. And I'm sitting in the hairdressers at Videl Sassoon and a voice next to me says, oh, where did you get your outfit? And I'm wearing this... I remember it was like a purple corduroy skirt and jacket and I got it at Bieber's and I said I got it at Bieber's. And I'm sorry, she's... Joanne, this is the most 60s story I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> like you're wearing a kind of a funky outfit from Bieber's while you're yeah. getting your hair cut at Vidal Sassoon and that's Isn't how that you wild? met Lulu? Wow. Isn't that wild? Mm. I know, it's, it's really wild. Wow. So <laughs> she... <laughs> And she'd already had hits, you know, she had a shout, shout and she hadn't done to Sir With Love yet. Anyway, she said, oh, do you think they've got any more? I said, I don't know. She said, let's go. So we both finished with our hair and we both went off down the street <laughs> with our geometric haircuts and we hit Bieber's and, well, didn't we have fun? And we bonded in Bieber's. I mean, that's what girls do, isn't it? We bond over clothes. She was younger than me. She was only 17. She was this little pocket rocket. And we just became such good friends. Now, she'd come to London and been discovered by a guy called Tony Gordon. And her parents didn't want her to move to London because she was too young. But Tony's mother, Jane Gordon, who lived in St John's Wood, said, well, she could come and live with me. And Jane Gordon was a little Jewish mother. So Lulu moved in with Jane Gordon and she grew up with this Jewish family too, with her Jewish family, Tony Gordon's Jewish family. So it was extraordinary. And Lulu and I basically did the 60s together. Wow. We just went everywhere together in the 60s. We met, uh, she knew the Beatles from Top of the Pops. Yes. John Lennon thought she was fabulous. He always had visions of corrupting. Lulu was a virgin, you know, she was still, she was the virgin pop singer. And uh, John Lennon knew this, and he used to flirt with her outrageously. And she'd go, oh, John, she had the Scots accent, just behave yourself, you know. And... <laughs> she gave John Lennon the knockback. That's pretty good. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, the Beatles were kind of rapidly evolving and changing and growing. And then you have 1967, which is the year of Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Do you remember the first time you heard that album? Yes. Now, we're in Belgravia in the house in Chapel Street, 24 Chapel Street. We had intercoms in the house, and I was on the top floor, and he buzzed me on the intercom, and he said, come down to the, to the study. So I came down to the study, and he, sat, he said, sit down, sit down. And he had the test pressing from Sergeant Pepper, and he said, I want to play you, play you this. I've got the test pressing. I was, like, so excited. He sat me in this chair, and the first song he put on was A Day in the Life. <laughs> Talk about start at the top. And he played me, he turned the speakers up to like volume 10 and he played me Day in the Life and it absolutely pinned me to the chair. I, I Pinned me to the chair and it took my breath away. 
And, and he said, and that's just the beginning, you know. So, um, so then yeah. the, the Sergeant Peppers was launched at a famous party in Sussex. What do you remember of that party? <laughs> it's amazing I remember anything. I went down with Lulu and it was at Brian's house in Sussex. He had a house in Sussex, Kingsley Hill it was called. And it was a Queen Anne house, beautiful old house. It was actually Winston Churchill's wartime retreat. And we walked in and... Um, it was an amazing atmosphere. The record was playing. The Beatles were there somewhere. <laughs> I'll tell you in a minute where they were. It was psychedelia. It was LSD. Lulu never touched drugs, and I didn't either. I got through all, the, all through the 60s. I must have been one of the few people who didn't do drugs through the 60s. And I remember walking out into the, into the driveway, and there was John Lennon's Rolls Royce, which was completely painted like a gypsy caravan. I opened the door... And inside was John and Derek and Derek's very pregnant wife and George and Patty and they were all inside tripping and they said, come on in. And I went, oh, I don't think so, and I closed the door. So, you know, it was, it was a very psychedelic party. Um, Lulu spent the whole night emptying ashtrays and making people cups of tea. <laughs> um, Kenny Everett, the disc jockey and comedian, was there. He was sort of fetal on the floor in the corner and three people... Actually, George wasn't in the car. Because, oh, no, this was later on. George was in the car. But later on, I went, walked past and they're all standing in a group round Kenny and... Um, they're all staring down at him, and somebody said to George, he just needs a cuddle. And I'm going to swear here because this was exactly what he said. He went, well, I'm not f***ing cuddling him. <laughs> <laughs> How wonderful. So this is, again, a terribly 60s event. The Beatles were growing and changing. Uh, how was Brian Epstein coping with managing this sort of like continual nuclear explosion that was the Beatles well, phenomenon? Brian definitely had an insomnia problem. He had sleep problem. And he took sleeping pills to go to sleep. And Brian's days and nights, because, you know, a lot of things happened at night, shows happened at night, Scylla Black would be playing somewhere, he would go and see the Moody Blues, whoever. So Brian's days and nights were often reversed. And I would get to work at 10 o'clock in the morning and walk up past, I had to walk past his bedroom, which had sort of dressing room, and then you went into his bedroom, and there would be notes that he had slid under the door for me. And sometimes those notes would say, please tell Rudolph and Lola, who were the staff at the time there, the butler and the, and the uh, housekeeper, to wake me at 3pm prompt with breakfast. And then he would get up and then we would start the day and I would sometimes work till 10 o'clock at night. So... Brian's days and nights had definitely reversed and with it went the need to wake up. So he got into taking pills to wake up and pills to fall asleep and it did affect him and he definitely had depression problems. They used to call it manic depression then. And because of his, he was so sleep deprived so often, it, it used to, his mood swings were getting quite bad. In fact, they were getting very bad. And so he went into a nursing home called the Priory, which was, was like a rehab place, a private, very exclusive private place for sleep treatment and to, to recover. What was the last time you saw him alive? So it was, it was August 27th, or, well, a few days before. It was the long weekend. Uh, I think it was called Sunday Weekend in London, summertime, August. Brian was going down to Kingsley Hill for the weekend. I was going home to be with my mum. He'd said to me, would you and Lulu like to come down for the weekend? Lulu wasn't able to, and I said, no, I haven't seen my mum for weeks. I'm always never there. So I walked down to the, the street. His, he had a silver continental Bentley convertible, very beautiful car sitting in the, in the curb. He had a chauffeur that had had it all polished, and it was as elegant as Brian. And um, he got in the car and he turned to me and I waved to him and he smiled and he waved and he drove off. And that was the last time I saw Brian alive. When did you realise that something wasn't right? Mm, so that was on the um, Friday evening. So on the Sunday lunchtime, I was having lunch with my mum 
and I got a call from the house from Belgravia. By now there was a couple called Antonio and Maria who were the housekeeper and manservant there. And they said, oh, Miss Joanne, Miss Joanne, we're very worried. Mr Epstein came home on Saturday and he's still in his room and it's Sunday. And I said, well, that's not unusual. You know, he's obviously taken something to sleep. He was tired. And uh, don't worry about it. He'll be OK. And then I went and sat down and I said to my mum, mm, I think I'll go over to the house. Something niggled at me. I had a little mini car. I had the keys to the house. I drove across London. It was really easy to get across London because everyone was away for the weekend. I let myself in. The staff came out to greet me and they were agitated. They were worried. I went up to my room and I pressed the intercom and I said, Brian, are you there? Hello, hello. And nothing. I could see the intercom had been turned off. And uh, so I went downstairs to the next floor down where his bedroom was and there was double doors that went into a dressing room and then you walked in through the dressing room was another door into his bedroom. So I banged on the door and I said, Brian, Brian, are you there? Are you there? And no reply, no reply. So then I went down to the kitchen and I phoned down to Kingsley Hill and spoke to the two people that he, who were down at Kingsley Hill that had gone down there. And I said, why is Brian back? Why, why did Brian come back? And they said, oh, he was bored. There was no action here. And, you know, he was bored with his two old friends and he decided to come back to London. I said, well, I'm very worried. It's lunchtime and I'm going to have the doors broken down. We're going to break down the doors. And they said, no, don't do that, don't do that. And they said, you've done that once before. And he was furious, he was asleep. I said, OK, well, I'm just, I'm, I'm very anxious. I phoned his regular doctor, Dr Cowan, and he was away. I phoned somebody from the office. I just didn't, I, I was scared. I, I mean, I'm 23 years old and I'm alone in the house except for these two Spanish people. And uh, finally, I managed to get another doctor friend that I, we knew and he came over, and he and Antonio broke the doors down, and we went in, the three of us went in, and I went in first, and Brian was lying on, in the bed, and he looked like he was asleep, and there was just a book open on his bed, and um, a plate of digestive biscuits by the side of the bed, and a bit of lemon, and I said, oh, look, he's fine, he's asleep, and the doctor just pushed me out of the room. And then he came out a little bit later and he was ashen. It was traumatic. We all went down to the study and the doctor said, is there any brandy? And we drank brandy. I mean, we were so shaken. What did you do then? I mean, well, because, I mean, suddenly you have the manager of the Beatles. This is going to be major international news yes. and, and he's dead. What, did, he's what dead. did you do? Well, we didn't call the police straight away. We went through the house. I mean, we're talking 60s and drugs and things are still illegal. We went through the house and we made sure there was nothing incriminating, like no pot in the house, or we took, we took all of that away. Then we called the police. And this was the strangest thing. The phone rang. I answered the phone, and it was a reporter from the Daily Express, a woman called Judith Simons, who I knew really well. She was a well-known show business reporter. And she said, Joanne, there's been a strange report come through that Brian is either seriously ill or he's passed away. And I said, oh, that's nonsense, Judith. That's absolutely rubbish. He's fine. And I guess I was still protecting him. I didn't want to admit that. And she said, well, what are you doing there on a Sunday? And I said, well, it's not unusual for me to come to work on a Sunday. You know, it's, you know what Brian's like. His life's all, you know, like that. And she said, oh, OK, well, that's all right. And then she said to me, you know, sometime later, God, you put me so off the scent that I missed the scoop of the, of the time. You Do you know, know afterwards it was rumoured that, and I think I had this story in my head, that Brian Epstein had taken his own life. But looking into it, it's just really super clear that it was just an accidental overdose of pills, wasn't it? As far as we know. You know, I had the question mark too. For, for a long time I had the question mark because it wouldn't have been the first time. Brian did take an overdose once before. And so it was in the back of our minds. We weren't sure. I mean, there was a lot of pills in the house. Things were changing for you at the time as well. Mm. Tell me how you met Colin Peterson, the man who was to become your husband. Yeah, well, that was through Lulu. She'd met Morris Gibb um, somewhere, probably at the top of the Pops. And as in Morris said, Gibb of the Bee Gees. Of the Bee Gees, yes. So she started seeing Morris and... 
we were so bonded, she said to Morris, why don't you get Colin to invite Joanne out? She'd said to me, you should go out with Colin so that we can make up a foursome. I mean, we were so young, naive, really. So Colin was actually a member of the Bee Gees at that time. He stage. was. He was a fully-fledged member. They, the, Bee, the Gibb brothers had known him from when they went to Humpy Bong School together. Right. In Redcliffe. Right. And, and he's the guy drumming on Spicks and Specks, isn't he? Yes, he's drumming on all of the early, all the everything up until the disco period. Um, so where did you go to get married, you two? <laughs> well, we eloped. The Bee Gees had been working flat out and they'd been given two or three weeks off. And we went to Robert's house and told them we wanted... We actually... Colin had to go in to Robert. I sat outside. There was a comedian called Frankie Howard who was in the, in the <laughs> living room. And he sat and held my hand. <laughs> Frankie Howard was holding yes. your hand? Yes. Was, yeah, I know. I, was, I sound such a name dropper. I know, but it's nonetheless, just... <laughs> it's pretty funny. Like, he's holding your hand with, going, ooh, or something. Like, who knows? I don't know. Yeah, yes, mm. just like that. Just, and Colin had gone in to tell Robert that he wanted to marry me. And was that, I mean, Robert's such a control, you know, he, he controlled, he was totally different to Brian Epps, and he controlled every aspect of the, 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 the Bee Gees' life. So he'd gone in to see if it was all right to get married and Frankie sat there and patted my hand and said, don't be so nervous, it'll be fine. And then Colin and Robert Stigwood came out and Robert said, I think this is absolutely splendid. Now, we'll have Barry as best man and we'll have it in this function and we'll have this band and he was going to turn it into a great big production, a big PR campaign. <laughs> and that was... Just impossible. So you were eloping from Robert Stigwood, in other words. Well, I wasn't just eloping from Robert Stigwood. I was eloping from my family because my mother didn't even know I was seeing Colin. Did she want you to marry a nice, respectable Jewish boy instead of a, totally, a drummer? Totally. Right. And totally. Mm. And, and, and now I've... Oh, look, it's terrible. We did. We eloped to the Bahamas <laughs> and we got married in a place called the Cumberland Restaurant by a big Bahamian man called Mr Maxwell Thompson, sir. And I remember um, thinking if my mother could see me now. And uh, then we had a meal and then we flew out. And then I thought, well, I'd better phone my mother and tell her the news. And I rang my mother. I was absolutely shaking and said, I got married in the Bahamas last night, Mum. And she said, yes, I know. I read it on the front page of the Daily Express this morning. That's how my mother found out I'd got married. Did she forgive you? She was shocked. My, you know, she was completely shocked. My brother wouldn't talk to me at all for ages, but she did. She, you know, she loved me so much. She was like, you know, you're still my daughter, and I'll always love you. Well, eventually, you and Colin decided to resettle in Australia. What yeah. do you remember of arriving in this this fine country where oh, you've chosen God. to spend the rest of your life? Oh my God! Talk about culture shock. Um, we arrived. It was middle of winter in England, and we arrived. At, just before Christmas in 74. And our, we, we flew into Darwin because we were going to Brisbane to stay with Connor's parents. Darwin at Christmas in 1974? Wait, wait, wait. Let me tell you, we sat there. I was the whinging pom. All you could drink was... It was a tin shed, basically, a big tin shed. All you could have was Coca-Cola or beer. It was so bad. I went, oh, my God, this place is awful. This is the first sight you see of Australia. It's really bad. And then we arrived in Brisbane, we're sitting in Colin's parents' garden on Christmas Day and Cyclone and Tracy had hit 12 hours after we left. And I turned around and said, oh, God, it wasn't that bad. Um, but, yes, we were there 12 hours before Cyclone Tracy. You ended up having a long career in the Australian music industry. What, what kind of artist did you end up representing, Joanne? Well, I didn't intend to have a long career. We got to Sydney and Colin was the A&R guy at um, EMI. He got a job at EMI. I, I now had two sons. One was born in England and then Ben was born in Australia. And I just thought that Colin would have this fabulous career and I would just be a mum and have a lovely life and spend the time on the beach and have a great life. However, it didn't quite work out like that for various reasons. I got offered a job at Warner Records... We signed In Excess. We had Richard Clapton and Mondo Rock and Jimmy Barnes. I mean, they really was really the golden time of Australian music. When we, when I first got here, I thought it was a musical wasteland. Um, I heard Skyhooks and How's That, and I was like, oh my god, I can't get my head around this. And then I heard Richard Clapton's Girls on the Avenue, and I went, ah, there's hope. <laughs> Um, it brought you into close quarters with Bob Dylan, 
once. How did you get on with him? Oh, God, yes. Well, then I went into music publishing, MCA Music, and I had a friend in L.A. that I used to see when I'd go there, and uh, she came out with Bob Dylan and Bob Dylan's girlfriend at the time. And so Kathleen called me and said, I really want Carol, Bob's girlfriend, to meet you. Let's go out to dinner tonight, the three of us. So I went to the Siebel Townhouse. By now, In Excess had just exploded onto the scene with the Kick album and it had a number one record, and I'd been very involved with all of that. And she took me over, and there sitting at the table was Bob Dylan and Tom Petty. Oh, my God, I was like I could barely breathe. And she said, Bob, Bob, he said, this is Joanne. You know, I told you about her. She knows in excess. (laughs) (laughs) And how impressed was he by that, I wonder? He stood up and he said, great band, great band. I like him a lot. I like him a lot. And I was speechless. All I wanted to do was look at Tom Petty because I was a huge Tom Petty fan as well as Bob Dylan. And she said, we went back up in the lift because the girls had got really sunburnt that day. And we went up into the room, the hotel room, Bob and Carol's hotel room, to get some cream for them to put on their sunburn. And they went into the bathroom and I sat on the corner of the bed while they're in the bathroom and I looked down and I thought, that's Bob Dylan's socks. I could steal those. And I actually thought for a minute that I was going to take Bob Dylan's socks and put them in my handbag as a memento. And then I thought, what if he'd been on stage with them and they were really smelly? So I chose not to do it, but I did nearly steal Bob Dylan's socks. (laughs) Well, you and Colin split. You've been living in Byron Bay for some time. Mm. How do you reflect on that all that time? You, You spent in that whirlwind era of the 60s? Joanne. Well, it was, a twin, it was a big career. I never intended to have that career. Colin was going to have that career. And I used to say to Colin, do you mind, you know, that I'm doing everything? And he said, no, rather one of us than neither of us. And he was brilliant. I mean, we were still together. And he would, was really great at helping me, you know, kind of guide artists. And, and then we split and I left Sydney. I left um, my marriage. I left my job. I left my sons, who were by now in their 20s. I left all my friends. I left everything I'd ever known. I put my dog in the car, and I headed for Byron Bay. I know the universe took me there, and it was the best thing that happened to me. I've, I've been there 24 years now. My whole life is there. I just absolutely love I've got wonderful friends. My son, Ben, lives there with my grandchildren. My other son's in Cairns. And Colin and I are still really good friends. We're, you know, I feel very blessed now. But, you know, it was, it was scary. <laughs> Have you seen anything of the surviving Beatles since that time? Ah, uh, so about 2017, I think it was in... I heard Paul McCartney was coming. He was touring in, in Australia. And somehow, and I don't know how word got to him that I was here. And, he, and so I got an, an email from his PA saying, uh, Paul would like to give you some tickets to the show and say hello. I was like, oh, my God, okay. So we went to the show in Brisbane, and then I was ushered into the corridor, and I walked down the corridor, and he's standing there, and he went, hello, Louv, it's been a long time, give us a hug. I said to him, you know, he had everything nailed down. There were no such, there was no iPhones, there was no, I didn't have one photograph of me with the Beatles, not at all, or with Brian, because back then in those days, you just didn't pull out your box brownie camera and say, can I take a photo? <laughs> you just didn't do and that. And send it to the chemist. <laughs> no. I mean, it would have been yeah. so uncalled, mm. you know, in this day and age where, you know, selfies and all that. Anyway, I, said, I told him that. He said, would you like a photo? I said, oh, yes. He had a photographer standing there nearby and he had a videographer. So he talked to the videographer, he did, and he said, this is Joanne Peterson, she was, you know, blah, 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 jo- worked with Brian, we knew her back in the 60s. And then we took this photograph. He said, well, i better go and earn my living and go back on stage now. And go on stage now, he said, give us another hug, it's been lovely seeing you. And then I got escorted to our seats, and it was the most extraordinary show my friend took photographs of me and my face. I'm lit up. I'm like somebody's plugged me into 240 volts and I'm totally lit up. And the photograph went, I got it three months later and it now sits on my sideboard, a, very, a treasured memento <laughs> at that so time. 50 years after Brian Epstein died, you get a photo at last with one, with one of the Beatles. I know, isn't that crazy? <laughs> that is amazing. Yeah. Uh, 
in one sense, you could say Brian Epstein was a man who was in the very, very much in the right place at the right time, seeing mm. the Beatles and the Cavern Club in Liverpool. But in yeah. another sense, he was born way too soon and had to cloak who he was in shame to some degree. Yes. What do you think yes. about all that, Joanne? Oh, God, I've thought a lot about it. I think a lot about Brian. I've dreamt about Brian. You know, it took me a long time to get over Brian's death. Um, a chap called Ray Connolly flew me to New York <clears throat> sometime later and we did... Um, it was an authorised biography from his family for Ray to write it on Brian. Look... And I sat there and I wept in the chair when I went through his death and, and, and Ray said he would send me the transcripts from what I'd said. And when I read it, I phoned Ray and I said, oh, my God, it sounds like I was in love with him. And there was silence. I went, I guess I was. You know, I guess you know, in my own way I was in love with Brian. Um, it was so, you know, it was a crime. It was criminal to be um, gay in the 60s. You could go to jail there was entrapment. Brian was well known. He was in such he could be blackmailed and was. He was a, he, it tormented him. Coming out was not not possible, except to his close friends in in an underground kind of way. And you know, I've thought so many times how different his life would be had he been able to live authentically in his own sexuality. And it was it was a tragedy. He he felt like he would shame his family. He would shame the Beatles. I mean, the Beatles knew and didn't care, but he cared. And now, I and mean, he died at thirty-two. And now here we are, fifty years later. We've we've just had same-sex marriage, and how different his life would have been now. He once said to me, "You know, I'm no good with men. I'm no good with women. I'm just no good with relationships." And so he was lonely. He led a lonely life, and so when the Beatles started to build their own lives, there was that void. And um, I don't know what would have happened had he lived. Maybe he would have gone on and been a big theatre impresario. He loved the theatre. But I'd love to have a conversation with Brian now. It would be so different because, you know, I was young then. I didn't have that depth of knowledge and wisdom that you gain with this great age. And so I would love to talk to him now about so many different things. And, and I still miss him, and, and I still love him. Joanne, yeah. it's been amazing speaking with you. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you so much, Richard. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website, abc.net.au slash conversations. Remember a time when you had one good outfit? Now the average Australian buys 56 items of clothing a year. And it feels like we're on a fast fashion treadmill that's kind of hard to get off. So, how did we get here? I'm Veronica Milsom, host of Threads, the podcast that undresses the fast fashion industry. From the marketing tricks that are being used on us right now... They're going to use social media to hunt down their prey. Bang, 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 bang. To the lies. So greenwashing is a marketing strategy that gives you a reason to buy. Threads. It's everything fast fashion doesn't want you to know. Threads. Threads. Hear it in the ABC Listen app.